While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Passing through the living room, I saw a commercial for the teaser trailer for the Fifty Shades of Grey movie. I was is the teaser the teaser trailer is distinct from the regular trailer, right? Yeah, this is just a trailer for the trailer. Okay, so this is a commercial for the trailer for the trailer. I guess of this garbage movie. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, that is exactly what I saw. There was a woman moaning. Oh, nice. But there was, so it's going to be her. true to the book. <laughs> you didn't see her. She was just moaning. You just hear it. Maybe she's hurt. Maybe. Maybe she likes check on her. Maybe she likes to be hurt. Oh, yeah. Maybe it's good kind of hurt. I mean, if Are you read. that kind of hurt? I don't. Oh, getting lost. <laughs> Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And sometimes we like to talk about bad books. Yeah, like Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah, go back and listen to that classic gem. Yeah, episode 50. Episode 50 for the Fifty Shades. That's still a great joke. My Mr. Fifty Shades. (laughs) (laughs) Laters, baby. Uh, I, uh, uh. <laughs> just having still having physical reactions to that book and not like the ones that I wanted me to have. <laughs> well, and that's one of those books that we've we've talked about it uh on the show before about like the difference of how you consume a book if it's on paper or if it's digital and that was one of the first books that I'd read all on a Kindle cuz I okay. borrowed a Kindle to read it. Because you didn't want to be seen in public reading that thing? <laughs> no, and I did not want to put it on my iPad. So, uh, like, was... what did you, Were you worried that something would happen to yeah, it? Yeah, I was going to start getting my other apps all smutty. I couldn't have Ew. that. Ew. Ew. So I have that like Kindle font etched into my memory with all sorts of inappropriate words. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's this there's this thing I wanted to talk about because it's... It's, um, I guess, germane to our subject matter. Um, oh, this, do. I think, early, late last week, Amazon announced a new service, a new Kindle service called Kindle Unlimited, which is, I guess, it's kind of trying to be like a Netflix for books. Like you pay ten bucks a month, and you get access to quote over six hundred thousand titles and thousands of audiobooks quote. Mm-hmm. And that's the deal that you get. I don't know uh, if that's going to work out. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Amazon already offers some stuff for people who actually own Kindle Kindles, not just people who use Kindle apps on like iPads or iPhones or other things. And um, there's a really great post on CNET that maybe we'll 
try to remember to link in the show notes about um, how the profit actually breaks down for authors and like what the book selection is kind of like, because, you know, of course their promo material heavily features like Harry Potter and um, Hunger Games and Life of Pi and other like high profile yeah, of course. Books that people are going to want to read. You know, capital B books. Yeah. So th- there were, I mean, there are just a lot of, there were a lot of interesting figures that the CNET report dug up that I thought were kind of, kind of interesting. Because, you know, when you think about streaming services, like if you take something like Spotify, where it's like an on-demand thing and people just play it, pay a flat monthly rate. Like you always, you always hear about the artists kind of getting screwed over by it because they are paid some insultingly small amount because their songs were just part of a package that the record label signed over. And so I'm, I'm kind of wondering if this Kindle Unlimited thing is going to be that except for books and that people aren't going to be able to avoid it because... Amazon is so big and Kindle is so big. Yeah, I don't know how the graph kind of breaks down for your non like Titanic authors, like your non like this would you're not J.K. Rowling. Yeah, this would not necessarily hurt J.K. Rowling. This would not necessarily hurt Jonathan Franzen, right? I don't think you can hurt J.K. Rowling anymore. I think she's too big to fail. I think she point. is too big to fail. <laughs> she said she's going to write another book, and everyone just kind of was like, all right, I guess, all right, whatever. I guess I'll put aside twelve ninety five U.S., fifteen ninety five Canadian. <laughs> um, but the folks lower on the ladder, and even the folks in, the, in kind of the middle of the ladder, seem to be the ones who get hurt the most in this scenario, right? Because yeah. they're not... The places like these streaming services like Spotify or, or even Pandora. Pandora does a bit of a better job for music anyway, I think. But they tout this like, oh, and then you'll get discovered because people will just go looking. No, I have like one Spotify playlist that I listen to on the regular and it's got about 100 songs. Yeah. And I'm, <laughs> I'm sure all of those people have earned maybe double digit dollars, if that, from the times I've listened to that playlist. So... This is not helpful. Yeah, you're you're really padding out Will Smith's pocket. Exactly. <laughs> like Robin doesn't need my money. Lady um, Gaga doesn't need my money. She'll take it though. She will take it. I am a little monster. She'll take right. my money. <laughs> so So here's some, here's some of the numbers on this Kindle Unlimited thing. First, out of those 600,000 ebooks, about 500,000 of those. So, you know, most of it are um, those are self-published books that are published through Amazon's Kindle Direct Publishing Select program. Um, so, like books that we've never even heard of because I don't go like searching for books. Well, I mean, you know, Fifty Shades was a was a uh, self-published uh, book before it was a God, before it was right. a international mega success. Oh, no. hold your tongue over there. Uh. Um, and that that program can i i don't want to come out and say that it's predatory because i think maybe that's a little extreme but there is no question where the power in that relationship lies of course (laughs) of course so um you know part of the terms that authors have to agree to to use that program is they have to say all right your book can only appear on the kindle platform for 
three months mm-hmm. if you want like a, a higher cut of the royalties and um and authors who you know who distribute books that way the way they get a cut of any money at all is kind of odd like if somebody downloads a book from like the Kindle lending library or from this new Kindle unlimited program, they don't get money from that. They only get money once a reader has, has read 10% of the book. Like they only get any money at all. Weird. Yeah. I mean, I guess I don't, so you're not getting paid for downloads. You're just getting, you're like, I can download as many books as I want. And if I never, if I read like six percent of all of them, then nobody gets any money. Is that to at all. perhaps prevent like a bot scenario where someone runs a, a simple program to like? Yeah, yeah, that's that's totally possible. Download um, a bunch of copies of your book and get get yeah. you like two cents on the dollar for it every time. Right. And then and the, and the other thing about it is that Kindle Direct Publishing authors cannot opt out of this stuff. Like. Oh, so if you're self-publishing on Amazon, your book goes on this thing. Yeah, that's my that's my understanding anyway. Hmm, I don't know if I like that. Um or at least, you know, it it's a it's a term for it's a term you have to agree to for the version of Kindle Direct publishing that gets you on the service more money. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I mean the the Cena article is way more in depth and probably does a better job of outlining this stuff than than we are. So I will try and include it in the show notes and probably post it up on our Facebook and Twitter pages at some point this week too. But I just wanted to just wanted to talk about that a little and maybe if if you listeners out there have thoughts on it or if or even if you have like published stuff on Kindle or some other service yourself and just want to talk about your experiences you can hit us at overduepod at gmail.com or twitter.com slash overduepod or facebook.com slash overduepod and just you know tell tell us what you think because we think this you know it's it's interesting because we read a lot and so we are the kind of people who in theory this kind of service would appeal to but i can't help but wonder if the people on the other end of it are going to be getting a raw deal out of it yeah and i don't know it would really depend on the library. Like, it really would. I don't pay for subscription. I don't think I pay for any, like, streaming service right now. You guys don't do Netflix or anything? Uh, I share Netflix. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm okay. I'm happy to say that. It's That's fine. very diplomatic. I mean, we're sharing an HBO Go account, yeah, so I guess we're all... <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, everybody's sharing. Everybody's sharing, just sharing. Share, Welcome like... to the share... Of the framily welcome to the framily it's a but it's an internet buzzword um, family it's friends and family it's one word is this some olive garden no it's thing. sprint it's not olive garden <laughs> <laughs> um but i don't know if i would i don't know i have i feel like i have a very tactile relationship with books anyway so my relationship to, to kindles in general is is not on the the cutting edge yeah, right. I I and I think we've talked about that before that you usually read physical books and I usually read ebooks. Yeah. Um books is books. Books is I books. Guess. Uh I think I would really need to know what the library is. I could see myself for professional purposes really wanting to have like a an access I would pay a monthly fee for access to a large library of 
dramatic texts, you know. Yeah. Um, right. Just to know that it's there. The the dream is that it's searchable, but you know Google Books will never happen. <laughs> Not in any real way. You're, yeah, you're gonna find if, those Google Books that have like pages missing all the way through, and they never tell you until it's too or, late. Yeah, and I guess it depend on what kind of plays and things, like how far back you were going. Yeah. If you could find, if you could find free eBooks at all, and if they would be. Like maybe the translations would be bad, or just, I don't know. Don't, there are all kinds of things. I that God go bless wrong, Project so. Gutenberg, but man, <laughs> you guys gotta get some better translators for stuff because sometimes those translations are rough. You gotta stop getting books from Project Steve Gutenberg. You gotta. <laughs> you need to go somewhere else. That was my mistake the whole time. <laughs> I didn't even realize. Well, let's talk about okay. let's talk about books. Let's talk so about that's real the, books. That's the news portion of this week's program, I guess. Um, what did you read this week, Andrew? Whether or not, right. how, regardless of how you paid for it, what did you read? Um, I read Tracy che- Chevalier. We're gonna go with Chevalier still. Uh, Tracy Chevalier's "Girl with the Pearl Earring." Girl with the pearl. Girl with a pearl earring. A, a pearl. Sorry, I misspoke. It's okay. I. I had to double check that a million times because I know it's named after the the painting, and so that yeah. factors heavily into it. So, who is Tracy? Why'd she write this book? What's going on? Um, she is a you know she's a modern author. This book was published in 1999, and it's the second of seven books that she's published so far. Okay. Um, she studied at Oberlin, got a master's from the University of East Anglia, and um. That's in England, also, not Ohio. Yeah, right. Okay. No. <laughs> and um, she also was an editorial assistant on Macmillan's Dictionary of Art for a while, which I think is probably what got her interested in these in in works of art in the first place. Because here's the deal with this book: is that it's about this painting, "Girl with a Pearl Earring," that's done by Johannes Vermeer. Uh huh. And. We don't know a ton about Vermeer. We know nothing about this painting, which is just a picture of a young girl. Who It's like a picture of her face, and she's wearing you know, a pearl earring. Yep. <laughs> and aside from that, we know nothing really about this painting at all. And so this book is a fictionalized account of how this painting came to be. Oh, I love it. That's a great That's a pitch deal. for a book. That's so <laughs> smart. You know, you can tell that she like because she also worked in publishing, right? Like, like yeah. legit book publishing. Mm-hmm. So you can see how she like hit upon this great elevator pitch for a book. Not, not yeah. Not, like, it seems like she really was able to refine her idea. I'm sure by seeing other people's unrefined ideas mm-hmm. or helping and it was them. it was pretty successful at the time. And in you know when it was published, it became a New York Times bestselling book. Um, it later became a movie with Scarlett Johansson and Colin Firth. Yep. Who I briefly confused with Hugh Grant, which I think would have been a very different movie. <laughs> would have been a very different movie. <laughs> <laughs> no, Colin, I think Colin Firth is like the thinking man's Hugh Grant. Or the thinking okay. woman's Hugh Grant, depending on your proclivities. <laughs> Like a classy Hugh Grant. I think he's like a classy but kind of bookish Hugh Grant. I get. I don't know. This this analogy is getting pretty tortured. So let's move. 
Uh, is there anything else about uh, Miss Chevalier? Chevalier? I'm not sure. Maybe no, I don't. I don't know. No, I don't. I'm I gonna go with the Americanized. The <laughs> she has a sister who lives in France, so maybe it's. Chev- yeah. I don't know. But let's go with Chevalier because we're Americans. Yeah, we are. Speak, All right, speak American. Speak this American, is an American please. podcast. Oh no. Love it or leave it, everybody. Oh, oh no, let's leave it. <laughs> uh, where is where does this book take place? Dutch. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> oh no. You know where that is, right? Yeah. Where? Yeah, I know. It's in Holland. Yeah, the Netherlands. The Netherlands. Oh, the seven United Provinces of the Netherlands. Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> Who's everybody so everybody's Dutch. Johannes Vermeer is Dutch. All the characters in the book are Dutch, so that's good. So before we started recording, uh I asked Laura cuz she is uh part Dutch. Um what Oh, okay. So she knows everything about all well, Dutch people. Yeah, basically. Uh I asked her like what three things, what three Dutch things are like would might be in this book, like super Dutch stuff. She said tulips, wood shoes, and windmills. Are any of those? I don't those think th- any of those factor prominently. Not even tulips into your girlfriend's racist caricature it's not, of it's not Dutch people. <laughs> she is that type of person. She okay. is Dutch. She went to school in like a Dutch town in Michigan. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't know that such a thing was even existed. They like settled there. It was like a big to do. I guess they have like a tulip fest. Were there? So let. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> no, I didn't know if you wanted to keep talking about. I was gonna, tulips. There weren't any tulips in this book. I find that hard to believe. Not that. Not that. Not any that were like a thing. I think maybe there were some tulips in a painting. At some point, but you're not. You're what you're saying is there's no chapter that's just Johan's favorite tulips. No, it's no nobody. Nobody does any tulips. Tulip time with the girl with the pearl earring. No, doesn't open. Okay. Nope. Do you want to talk about the book? You want to talk about Johan? Um, let's talk about let's talk about Vermeer a bit because understanding what we know about him is sort of key to understanding his characterization in this book. Great. So he's, I mean, he's not a figure of international mystery to the extent that Shakespeare is. Like, we know more than five things about him. <laughs> okay. But he's still a guy that we don't know a lot about. Yes. Okay. He was born in 1632. Um, he died in 1675. Not that, not that long by all. By all yeah, uh, it was like, he accounts. was like 43. Yeah. And he did not paint. I mean, he was, he's known for his use of color and light. Mm-hmm. And if you look at his, if you go to his Wikipedia page and look at the paintings that they have up there, like if you're zoomed out even a little bit, like they look, it's hard to tell if they're photographs or paintings. Yeah. Like his, they're really, they're really good. His sense of scale is, is, and perspective is, is really something to marvel at for a 17th century painter. Um, there's another website that I was kind of taking a look at called the essential Vermeer, mm-hmm. um, that has a pretty good breakdown of the technique of the time period. Um, and a little bit of the 
kind of controversy surrounding his methods. Did you read any about that? No, no. The me. I'm interested. That I'm happy you brought up the the photorealism aspect because there's something called a camera obscura. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That fact that's in the book a lot. Oh great. Okay, so we'll we'll come back to this, but short short version. Short version. It's a kind of pinhole camera with a mirror in it that will project uh, an image through it, um, project light through it, and you could project it onto paper and then trace that paper. Uh, and it would retain all of its proper perspective, and then you could just kind of paint over it. Is the theory? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some there's some working theories that F- Vermeer and other folks in that time period may have embraced such technology. So, oh, so he was just cheating. Well, uh, do you call that I, cheating? I don't. No, that's no, that's not what I would call it. <laughs> a- anyway, what else do you want to say about Johann himself? Like the uh, mystery well, let's, surrounding let's him. Talk about the. I just want to talk about the camera real quick and about his style a little bit because in the book it does go into a little bit of detail on on why his paintings are so striking. Sure. Is that in the book? And I'm not sure if this like is actually real or if this is just Chevalier taking a little bit of license to, I guess, distance him from any accusations of of like cheating or taking shortcuts. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he, he has a friend who has a camera obscura. Ah. And his friend just, like, late in the process, his friend comes over with the camera obscura. And they look at the mostly finished painting just to, like, get another perspective on it. And see if they can, if if through it they can see any, like, subtle details and things that they missed. Okay. So that's that's where that comes up in the book. It's kind of like a like a spell check for your painting, right? <laughs> There's no red squigglies under. It that looks girl's like face. you're drawing a portrait. Would you like some help? Get out of uh, here, Camry. Get out of here. <laughs> call him Painty. Oh, Painty that's that's such a better name. <laughs> it um when it's talking about his style, it talks about how you know if if somebody is wearing a white cap or if, or if like or if you asked he asks the main character her name is greet i think like g-r-i-e-t how would you i'm sure that's that? greet. greet or greet i'm sure it's greet let's, you might flip call the her greet. yeah let's call it greet yeah. greet greet ah oh, so great <laughs> he asks her you know what color are clouds and she says well they're white and he says well why don't you look at the clouds and tell me what color <laughs> they are and she starts to see like hints of other colors in the clouds, and when they're all like, <laughs> when they're all condensed together, you know, the overall impression is of white, but there are a lot of other colors like lurking in there. Okay, lurk, ooh, creepy. Yeah, lurking colors. And so he, he, she talks about how, you know, if he's painting a blue dress, he's not gonna start with the blue. He's gonna like paint black or something. And then he'll paint blue over it, and in the end, it'll look like a dress with like shading, and and it'll look more realistic for, you know, being painted with multiple colors instead of you know starting with the primary color and trying to work from there. Yeah, well, I think part of that uh, coming from this Vermeer website that now I I just kind of want to spend a week on this Vermeer website. <laughs> uh, it talks about the primary stages of his technique. Uh, being the preparation of whatever it is, right? Like whatever he's painting that day. What's called the dead coloring, which is the underpainting, which I think mm-hmm. is what you're talking about. Like the yeah. the dark color in the background, kind of the support colors. 
then what's called the inventing, which is when he's drawing the figure itself, and then the working up and retouching, which is actually doing the painting, um, mm-hmm. and then glazing it. So this it is this kind of bottom-up process that is not flat, right? They're working... Yeah, and the- yeah, the book does a pretty good job of explaining all those stages through Greet's eyes mm. and like her initially not understanding, like, why are you just painting these shapes and little lines where <laughs> stuff is supposed to be? Don't you just don't you why don't you just start painting the painting? Yeah, that's funny. I wonder. If- so it's it's interesting that Chevalier is she paid so much attention to his style and the way he worked and then took such pains to show us exactly what he was doing but like through her character's eyes i guess yeah and and she has the uh the freedom to kind of put that what that curiosity and lack of knowledge into a character that is not a real person right 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 yeah um interesting all right well do you want to dive into the into the plot at all um or what's worth little, talking just a about a little it? bit just a couple quick hits about Vermeer's like I said we don't know a ton about him except for you know his style yes and and partly it was because he was kind of famous contemporaneously and then for a couple centuries he drops off the art world's radar and he's only rediscovered in the 1800s and sort of canonized from there Um, so he's you know he's not really intensely studied so we know he got married um we know that he had 15 kids with his wife, of which 11, you know, survived. Wow. Yeah. There's a, lot, a, lot, a lot of kids. His wife in the book spends, uh, her name is Katharina. She spends most of the book pregnant with one baby or another. All right. Um, uh, we know, did I already say he converted to Catholicism? No, you did not. He was, he was reformed church when he started. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, he lived with his mother-in-law, and he died in debt. And like those, that's not everything we know about him, but that's like those are like the broad strokes. Yeah, I think the they attributed originally like sixty some paintings to him, and now we think it's somewhere more in the forties. Yeah, about thirty-four. And I'm sure some of that comes from the fact that like this painting is what's called a trony, right? Do they use and... that word in the book? Yeah, no, they don't use that word in the book, but I'm looking at some tronies and... They're great. Oh, man, they're so good. They're so good. They're portraits, but kind of exaggerated facial expressions a lot of the time. They're not They're not just straight portraits, and they are. some of them are pretty goofy looking. Yeah, well, and they're meant to capture an emotion or a type of person rather than, like, the person itself. And I, ma- I wonder if that's why we don't... Like, we lost track of him because mm-hmm. there were f- perhaps fewer people who had commissioned portraits from him, and he was just selling these tronies. Because when you were selling tronies, you weren't putting the names of the people you'd painted. so they ha- And they, they wouldn't get a copy of it necessarily, so they might not keep track of who painted them in the same way. Right, yeah. Like, it's we, we know this one is Vermeer's because it's signed, but it's not dated. Um, we don't know if it was commissioned or who by, mm-hmm. and we have no idea who the subject is. But you do, I mean, you do looking at the painting, you get the impression of someone who is, you know, young, but maybe serious. Like she has very knowing eyes, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Quizzical, but kind of holding whoever she's looking to, to a standard of some kind. <laughs> right? Like a... 
come on now. Is no, a- no, no, I get you. Like it's <laughs> it's it's a kind of an ambiguous an ambiguous facial expression. So like most you can, great you can read yeah. a lot into it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a deal with Ramir and the the fact that, you know, we don't know that many things about him plays into the book because Chevalier says that she did not want to fictionalize him very heavily. Mm, okay. And so from Greet's perspective, and we do spend the entire book in Greet's head. Oh, interesting. Never, okay. Yeah, we never we never hear anything from any other character. That's smart. Except through her. Yeah. And um Greet is a maid who goes to work for Vermeer's family. She has to work to get money for her parents and she needs to get money for her parents because her dad like a kiln exploded and he went blind oh no yeah so you know they've fallen on hard times she's about 16 and she has to go to work to you know to bring home some bacon for her family because her family (laughs) cannot afford bacon because they're so poor okay so she goes you know she goes to this this house and she uh, you know uh, at first interacts with Vermeer only very occasionally and he's kind of a, a mysterious figure where is he in the book in his life at this point is he in his like 20s is he in his 30s Do you he's, know? he's like 10 years from dying okay so he's in his because yeah 30s because or... there's a flash forward toward the end and, and he has just died okay and it's about it's yeah she's she's about 10 years distant from when when most of the book takes place. Cool. Um, so yeah, this is in like the sixteen sixties ish. Great. And um and so yeah, she she goes to work for this family and she, you know, has to has to learn how to do all her chores and she has to deal with the cantankerous older maid who is very persnickety and feels kind of threatened by her. Um, she has a deal with the mother-in-law who is very serious, but kind of takes a liking to her. And she has to deal with Vermeer's wife who does not like her. <laughs> well, I can't. Okay. Yeah, sure. Um, because I, I mean, the, the book is very concerned with historical accuracy or at least, you know, the appearance of historical accuracy. So the characters in it are very like aware of their place in society. Yes, it's not just a like ribald tale of paint love, right? It's... No, and people don't just people don't just like talk to each other and like interact like they might if they saw themselves as equals because you know, Vermeer's family is not rich, but they are middle class ish in a way that uh-huh. Greet and her family are not. I mean, even though the middle class wasn't super a thing at this point in history <laughs> well the dutch made room for it um yeah it, it, the dutch golden age certain certainly made room for it with the riot like they created for lack of a better word created trading at this point like mercantilism yeah. came out of this era so right. you've got a whole new economic sector that didn't exist mm-hmm. um and you know she's so she's from a lower class she is the maid and she's very aware of she's where she's very aware of appearances she's very aware of the class differences and she's very aware of the things that people think about maids like people think that maids eavesdrop people think that maids steal people think that maids you know seduce the master of the house 
Interesting. Okay. And so, you know, you've got to keep this stuff in mind because it informs a lot of the rest of the stuff in the book because it's not, it's not a book where a lot happens like overtly. It's all like subtext and like understandings between characters, I guess. A lot of people kind of coming into rooms, sizing each other up and then saying, see you tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, if they say anything, because sometimes they just don't say anything and walk away and like, but you just, you know. Okay. You know what happened. Because... Whoa. Whoa. Okay. So Vermeer gradually takes an interest in Greet and, you know, eventually she is allowed in, you know, she's a she starts out being allowed into a studio to clean Mm -hmm. and nobody else is allowed in the studio because when he's working on a painting and he's often working on paintings for months at a time, he's painting a scene. And, you know, even though the model's not in the scene, the rest of it can't change at all because he's, you know, he's capturing it. And so it's Greet's job to go into the studio very, very carefully take a note of exactly where everything is and how it's arranged clean around it and then put it back exactly the way it was before. Okay. So she's doing this for a while and this, you know, this causes some friction already because, you know, the other maid can't go in the studio. His wife can't go in the studio. He's never painted his wife before. Hmm. And it's just not, it's not a part of his life that he shares with his family. Like they benefit from it economically, but they're not, they're, they are not like subjects of his painting. I wonder, he doesn't, he doesn't paint them. Does she, I wonder what historical documents she was able to base that on other than perhaps just a lack of a painting that by Vermeer that says, this is my wife. My wife. <laughs> my wife. <laughs> but I don't know. Like that, that's kind of a useful trope. I, would, I don't call it a trope derogatorily, but it, it is a useful kind of setup of like the artist or creative personality that does not share that portion of themselves right with like take takes other parts of their lives for granted because they did not uh share you know share that with their loved ones right and it's a setup that that automatically creates divisions and suspicion Uh uh-huh with you know between everybody who lives in this house and this like 16 year old who is who thinks more than she says yeah yeah and I, I don't know. So so eventually Vermeer kind of takes more of an interest in Greet and starts letting, you know, he he starts telling her about how he's painting and he lets her, you know, mix colors and things for him. You know, stuff that not only do the other members of the family not get to do, but stuff that she has to hide from pretty much everybody but the mother-in-law. Oh, okay. Who is pretty much the only person in this book who is not silly <laughs> who's not just a silly goose about everything interesting choice of like words. she knows she's very direct she knows what's up okay she gets it and she's not as hung up on like appearances and the way stuff is supposed to be as everybody is else. she like is she like maggie smith from downton is she like a is she like a straight talking so old I don't, broad I don't watch that show so but but it sounds like it yeah okay never mind She's, I mean, she's that, you have those characters in books who are, like, old the whole time in the book, and they don't age. Like, there's a part at the end, you know, after the time jump, where Greet says, you know, 
Maria Thins, that's the stepmother's name. She's, she'll never age. Just one day she'll go to sleep and she won't wake back up. <laughs> yeah, these forever old people who are perennially yeah. wise. and Who are going to outlive us all. Like yeah. Ann B. Davis from the Brady Bunch was like that. Okay, fair time. enough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Or Be- Betty White. Betty White's another one. Yes, she's a forever old. She'll, she'll bury us all. <laughs> and be laughing the whole time. <laughs> So Greet's mixing the paints. Yeah, and she's she's helping him. And like at one point, she makes a change to a scene without asking him because she like senses that it will make the painting feel right, and he like doesn't change it back because you know she's right, I guess. Okay. And you know there there's this whole sequence of events. Like I don't feel like I need to go into every no no not at significant all. glance or anything, but the short version is. The master, you know, Vermeer has taken a kind of an unspoken interest in Greet. Sure. You know, and they never consummate anything, but that tension is like there all the time. And so when this this butcher boy starts talking to Greet and like makes it obvious that once she turns 18, he's going to ask her parents if he can marry her. Okay. Like, like Vermeer knows that and gets like super weird and jealous every time the butcher, the butcher guys are Johan, Johan, Johan. And so eventually he, he, he doesn't say, you know, I'm going to paint you, but he has this, this patron who buys paintings from him, who is kind of a lech. Like there's, (laughs) he appears he apparently was painted by Vermeer once with this, just this maid in a red dress. And by the time the painting was done, she was pregnant. So, oh no, like, that's the that's the kind of guy this this dude is. Oh no, I have to keep changing her face because she's getting more pregnant as we finish this painting. So he wants he you know this this dude wants greet in a in a painting with him, and they. You know, they kind of deflect him and send her on errands whenever he's around. And so eventually he's in a separate painting, but he wants a painting of her. And so Vermeer decides to paint this picture of her in in a, you know, a headdress that is, is you know, she wears like this white maid's cap all the time. So he, he wants to paint her wearing these earrings and this in this head scarf thing that, you know, they're the trappings of a higher class woman and also the earrings belong to his wife Uh-oh. who has already tried to accuse greet of stealing once in the book when it was really just one of the kids trying to set greet up no because, yes <laughs> and so her wife his wife sees the painting and almost like destroys it and it just happens to be her 18th birthday and the butcher guy comes to ask her to to marry him and after this whole confrontation with Vermeer and the wife and everything she up and leaves and lives the rest of her life basically you're right with a lot of regrets um, she kind of worries about things for a while but then once she has her own kids she's like okay I don't have the energy to be worrying about seeing this guy in the market anymore like I have to I have to take care of my family okay and so she pretty much lands on her feet but you know not not until after this this whole crazy chain of events has happened to her <laughs> okay so it's a it's a tale of 
it's a tale of love, kind of, but not really. Kind of quiet, not even longing, but just thinking about you real hard, and then yeah. restraint. Yeah. Is, and how does how does that like, play on the page? There are conflicting views about this. I was reading about the critical response to the book, and um, there's a quote from a writer in Time, I think, who was reviewing it, who says, you know, the fact that, that Greet and Vermeer have this tension but never act on it is, quote, an exquisitely controlled exercise that illustrates how temptation is restrained for the sake of art. And I think that's one way to look at it. Okay. But I also think that in a lot of ways this book is like two or three painstakingly described sex scenes away from just being a romance novel about painting but you take those out you take those out and you get the book as it stands yeah yeah man i think sometimes i think it works okay I, i actually i kind of was thinking that i didn't like it and then i started doing more research into vermeer and into the painting and into the you know the the way that people were expected to behave, I guess. And I was like, you know what? I kind of appreciate what she's, what she's doing. Yeah, man. I think that like with not wanting to exaggerate things about Vermeer or like cast aspersions that, that don't belong, I guess, or that we can't confirm or don't know about. Or make it like extra sexy, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Make up a bunch of sex stuff that didn't like sexy history. Yeah. Yeah, like sexy historical fiction, which which this almost is, but isn't really. Yeah, which and I think I I understand that um, <clears throat> it's like restrained sex because of the art, like that that totally is a a style of historical fiction that makes sense and and definitely appeals to me in the sense that it's like. These people are, they're just people. Of course they have people feelings like sex. Like Yeah, people feelings like well, sex. Very you know, eloquently stated. We spent like <laughs> 10 minutes of this podcast talking about like light and paint technique and sure, yeah, yeah. stuff like that. When it's like, he was a late 30s year old dude who had this 16 year old girl working in his house. Who knows how he yeah. felt. Yeah, like. Whether or not that's like I, I morally right, say, you know, whether or yeah. not he was... You know, he's still married. That's not necessarily the best decision, but yeah, as far as humans go. Maybe that's what Chevalier was going for, but I think to, I don't know, to ascribe this, like, this unspoken sort of resistance to their urges in the name of art, I think maybe you're giving the human race a little too much credit. <laughs> well, I mean, there, there's nowhere in the book where they say we can't have sex because of the art, right? No, but there's also nowhere in the book where, like, you know, there, there's nowhere where they could have sex and then they say, oh, no, let's not. Like, it's a thing. I think maybe they don't have sex because the opportunity does not present itself. Well, to me, that's even... That's perhaps even more human, right? Of the like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The people that you meet, that you like, feelings and attraction and and all that kind of stuff happens on a pretty broad spectrum. Yeah. Um. No, I'm I'm not I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, but I'm saying that the reviewer. Oh, who fair enough. Fair enough. Said yeah. the thing is like, maybe even taking away from the story a little bit by trying to make it into this 
by trying to force this metaphor about art on it. <laughs> yeah, rather than just saying it, it happens to be about these people and art happened. Yeah. Yeah. Art. Because <laughs> I think that kind of completely non-reciprocated, like I wouldn't even say unreciprocated, like it's just, it's there, it exists in in the minds of the people and they're not even doing anything about it. Like, that is a thing that people experience, for better or for worse, all the time. Yeah. Um, and it, I, can't, I can imagine that it would only happen more in a society that's a little more Calvinist, like Calvinist uh, Netherlands. <laughs> I mean, uh, these are Catholics, but okay. <laughs> are they? Ca- well, is, well, he's a Catholic. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's a Catholic by marriage, and he married into a Catholic family, which, you know, could help to explain all the kids, but... That would. Okay, fair enough. But the Netherlands at the time have a very Calvinist kind of work ethic and and tradition of moderation and and stuff like that. The Protestant versus Catholic thing comes... I mean, it's not a huge element in the book, but it does come up a couple times. So, yeah, obviously those tensions existed and... Chevalier wanted to, you know, in, in her pursuit of historical accuracy, wanted to make sure that they were represented in there somewhere. Did it ever feel like the historical fictionness of it was too much or overtook the story or made it less interesting? I mean, you know, like I, like I was saying, I, I was close to thinking that I didn't like this book that much. And part of it is because... I mean, so much happens because of, like, glances yeah. and societal pressures and stuff that it kind of gets in the way of the flow of the story sometimes. Like, how many times can they, like, trade significant looks or he, like, accidentally sees her hair under her cap or something? Like, how how many times is that effective? Like, I get it. <laughs> They're into each other. Like, yeah, I understand. <laughs> but then, of course, in context, that does that means everything. Yeah. Oh my yeah. God! I saw your ankles. It's not a long enough book that it gets old, but it gets close to being old. Okay. But then, if it spurs an interest in time period and character, then retroactively, you're like, yeah, all right. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I appreciate what she did. Like she kind of made this book that. Okay, maybe it could have happened. It doesn't directly contradict anything that we know. Cool. So, cool. I I appreciate you working within those lines and not going all like inglorious bastards on it or something. <laughs> <laughs> or all fifty shades on it or something. Well, fifty shades isn't historical fiction, but okay. Well, I'm I just meant in terms of the sex. Oh no, yeah, that's another approach you could have taken, but doesn't. <laughs> fifty shades of grey paint. Cool. <laughs> Stop it. We're done. This book yeah, I think is done. I, I think I think I'm good. If you want to tell us about your favorite sexy painter, uh you can email that in to overduepod at gmail.com or you can tweet them in at twitter.com slash overduepod or facebook.com slash overduepod. I want to thank people uh who are tweeting at the show, uh like Bob Z or Kara or uh, who else did we get on our Facebook? Eric chatted to us on our Facebook. One other guy whose name I'm looking for, John, Jonathan. Um, he reached out to us, a couple of different people. So thank you for that. Uh, we also got an email about Nebraska. I'm trying not to bring up Nebraska on every show. What do they want? Well, no, our friend Aaron 
uh, wrote in saying that I was wondering on the Tina Fey episode about the battles in in Nebraska, and apparently there have been a handful of them, and almost all of them were against the native uh, Native American population. All so right. cool. That's that's kind of part for the course kinda, for the American American West, I guess. Yeah. So, so good job, um, us. Chill out, Nebraska. Cool your jets. Yeah. The more I find out, the less I want to know, you know? <laughs> if uh, we also have a website up at overduepodcast.com where you can find a link to our RSS feed and to our iTunes page. Um, you can use both of those to subscribe to the show. If you subscribe in iTunes, do take a minute to rate and review us because that helps us out in the rankings and it helps people find the show. And uh, also on the website, we have Amazon links to the books that we have read and are going to read. If you want to read long, you know, click those links, buy the books, and also whatever else. And we get a uh, we get a cut of the money from anything you buy after you click those links. So next time you need like I don't know some cereal that you want to buy off of Amazon because that's the thing you can do. Click our link first and then buy your Crispix because that'll help us out. Or self-published Kindle book, maybe. Yeah, that too. Do that. that. Um, I think that is that everything. I think that's everything. Yeah, I just like to tell Nebraska that at some point in the past seven months, someone from the actual Netherlands has been to our website. So get on it, Nebraska. Yeah. Let's go. Someone, someone from Dutch. There, they've been here. Yep. Where are you, Nebraska? The Dutch. Uh, Craig, what are you? <laughs> the Dutch have been here. Craig, what are you reading next week? Go Tell It on the Mountain by James Baldwin. It's a coincidence because I kind of found that independently in what I was looking for to read. And then it was actually on our list of recommendations. So good on me, I guess. Yeah. One of the lesser known Baldwin brothers, right? No, you got it. (laughs) I think people know who James Baldwin is. All right. No relation to Alec. (laughs) we're gonna do that next week uh until then everybody try to be happy 